Hello, and welcome to UCM Radio The Beat. You're listening to Chatting It Up, the only radio show where pants are optional. I'm Greg Burns, and joining me today we have Dr. Stephen Price, an associate professor of digital media production. I'm wearing pants, by the way. I was going to make a joke, but I don't know what to say. I guess the only thing I can say is, as a DMP professor, I'm sure you have plenty of time behind the camera, but which do you enjoy more, taking photos or videos? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I started out with a video camera in my hand, and video is a lot simpler because you don't have to swap lenses, you don't have to worry about filters, you just sort of run and gun with the camera. And um, when I started out working in news, that mode of production just made sense to me. And when I flowed into documentary film, we still, you still use video cameras a lot of times in, in documentary filmmaking. Um, recently, I've gotten a lot more into photography and cinematography within the last five or six years. And um, I really do like still photography. There's something about taking still photos and just capturing that moment in time that um, video almost seems like cheating, right? Because you can go in and take out a still frame if you want from any part of the video. So I think I like still photography these days, but it, it comes and goes, you know, I like all of it a lot. Are there like certain sort of photos that you like taking, like certain themes? Yeah, yeah, I like landscape pictures a lot. I, I do some portrait photography, um, but I, I'm not very good at directing the actors because I, again, I come out of that news and documentary background. Um, I've done some narrative stuff, but usually I'm not the director. And so telling people how to pose or what to do or how to look or where to, you know, angle their chin this way or that way, it's like that's not – I don't do that. So when I do portrait photography, I just like um, act natural, do your thing, and I'll just take a million pictures and hopefully a few of them will be good, you know. And, and usually some of them are good, but, but I get a lot of bad ones and I think, wow, I'm a professional photographer. I should do better than this, you know. Um, but but the good ones come out really good, and they always seem natural that way instead of kind of, you know, posed or faked. So I, I usually get happy with the results. It just takes a lot more uh, digital space to get, to get some good ones. Yeah, that actually does sound really interesting how you do that. Uh, well, what I understand is that you have worked in sports radio as well uh, with Learfield, Inc., did you have a specific sport that you worked with? And like, what job did you, or did they have you do? Yeah, yeah, so my career track actually has just been long and winding. You know, I'm, I told you I'm into photography now. I started out in radio. When I was uh, 15 years old, a friend of mine, he was actually this guy that wanted to date my sister. And he was like, hey, yeah, I can get you a job. And uh, so he was working at Learfield, and they recruit a lot from high school students in Jeff City, where, where their headquarters are. Um, and I thought, yeah, cool, whatever, I'll try it. You know, I hadn't done anything in radio, wasn't really interested in radio. I listened, I like music, you know, I liked radio shows. But um, so I, I took the job there, and I got to run the Mizzou football and basketball games. And I grew up in Jeff City. I'm a big Mizzou fan. You know, I love Tigers football and basketball. And I kind of, I've always wondered, like, if I got assigned to, like, Purdue or one of those other stations, um, one of those other schools that Learfield owned the rights to uh, broadcast their games, if I would have stuck with it nearly as much. But it was amazing. I got to go in and just, you know, listen to the games, which I might have been doing anyway, and I got paid for it. So 
all I had to do was make sure the the feed didn't drop. I had to put the commercials into the the uh, broadcast. I had to make sure the levels were good throughout, um, but I didn't have to talk. I just got to listen. And so doing that um, really got my start in the industry. Uh, and so I went to college, bounced around between a bunch of different majors. At the time, I still wanted to be an engineer and, uh, you know, design buildings and bridges and stuff like that. Um, and eventually I thought, well, that's not for me because I don't like math. And so what could I do? And I, I was like, well, I like that. That job in, in Learfield, I liked that radio job that I had when I was 15. And so I became a communication major and then bounced from there to the TV industry, to the film industry, to teaching, freelance work. I've done a lot of weddings and commercials and music videos and things like that. But back to my roots, audio and uh, specifically radio sports was my passion. And it really just came out of being a fan of the team, you know. Did you ever get to meet any of the players? Never got to be actually on game site itself. We were always in the studio in Jeff City because somebody has to be on that end of the broadcast. So Mike Kelly and John Cadillac and, and the announcers for the Mizzou Sports got to travel around with the team everywhere they went. And then they'd hook up over, back then it was called ISDN, um, which was basically over the dial-up telephone lines. And you had to have several dedicated lines. So if one call dropped, it wouldn't drop the entire broadcast. Um, now, of course, it's done over the internet, um, and it's not not nearly as unreliable. But you had to have engineers on site, both at the game site and at the studio, to make that connection work. And I guess that's just cheaper for Learfield to do that rather than send like you know a crew out and take that ISDN out to all the stations, um, because the the feed that came back from game site to Learfield then went out to hundreds of stations around the state. And if it was a Purdue game, you know, it would go out to the, the Indiana and, and that whole state and, you know, all of the um, whatever school it was. You know, they had KU, Purdue. They had about 30 or 40 schools even back then. And I think there, there are a lot more schools in Learfield now. Um, and so it, it was their central hub in Jeff City. Cool. Uh, so moving on from uh, radio and whatnot, and now going to a medium we had before radio, letters. We got a letter from a beloved listener wanting to know if you liked cats or dogs more. <laughs> Would you care to tell? I am such a dog person. Um, I, I had, when I was in college, actually, I got my first dog that was mine. I grew up with, you know, we had family pets and we had dogs. Uh, we did have a cat when I was really little, but I'm actually allergic to cats. Um, it's not so much that I don't like cats, but they don't like me usually. So uh, I'm not a cat person. Love dogs. My wife is a pig person. And so for a while we had a pet pig and uh, she lived in our basement. We have a walkout basement here in Warrensburg with a fenced in yard. We got her when we lived in Georgia. Um, and uh, had about an acre, so that was much better for her. here in Warrensburg. It gets colder, and uh, we didn't have as much land, so it wasn't quite as nice for her in Warrensburg. But yeah, we had a pig for a while, and I'm not much of a pig person. Um, I did like her. It wasn't like she was a terrible pet, um, but they like to wallow in the mud and get dirty and then climb up on your furniture, and you know, um, dogs do the same thing, I suppose, but uh, I just have always had a love for dogs. 
Now, you might have been wondering why on the exit sign it does say dog people only. That's because that's the door you're supposed to take <laughs> as soon as you answer that question incorrectly. Yeah. So, uh, goodbye. I did, not, I did not see that, no. Ah, well, uh, I guess it's too late. We're already in the middle of the show. <laughs> uh, now, I was told that you actually own a drone. What sort of cool stuff can you tell me about that? Yeah, so about three or four years ago, I wrote a grant here at UCM to get a drone, and the university bought it. They've since sort of uh, gone back and forth on the legal aspects of flying a drone for the university. So I've got it, and I've flown it, and I've done some freelance work with it. I'm, I'm thinking about actually buying my own and freelancing with it as well. Um, but in the past, when I was still flying it, uh, I did some commercial work with it. I went up to um, a, a conference up on Lake Michigan, a teaching conference, and did a wrap-up video for them where I flew the drone. And it was pretty neat to get shots like over Lake Michigan and um, high up shots of the, they had never, they always take a group picture and there's, you know, 150 people at this conference. And uh, they could never really get everybody in the picture to where you could see all their faces. So I took the drone and I just kind of flew it across and you could see everybody's faces. Um, it really kind of brought that video to another level doing that. I flew it some for the university. Uh, the golf course wanted some video of their new holes that they were building and things like that. Done some, some web videos to, for the university as well with it. Gives, just gives you a unique perspective. Did you do like any like really cool videos with the drone at all? No, again, because, you know, the, the FAA controls all airspace. And so the FAA, as they were writing their rules for drones, the university started to kind of back off on whether or not we could fly it until the rules and regulations came out. We're obviously within a certain distance from Whiteman, and we have our own airport as well that we're within five miles of. And so some of the regulations that came from the FAA at first restricted us from flying it around Warrensburg and then... They lifted some of those, but then the liability of flying a drone kind of came into play. So we've kind of gone back and forth. On campus now with legal, I'm on a task force where we're trying to actually lay out policies for flying drones. And so once we get those policies in place, I plan on offering a drone cinematography class where students can sign up and take this class and I'll teach them how to fly drones and how to get really good, you know, film footage with a drone. Um, I was uh, I was part of a crew for the the House Hunters show on HGTV. Um, they came to Warrensburg. Gosh, it's been about five years now, um, and they hired a drone operator to come up from Southern Missouri. And uh, when he was flying, and I was talking to him, it just really struck home that. One, drone footage is overused, right? House Hunters at the time was throwing a drone shot in every single episode, even when they didn't need to. Uh, but two, this guy made a ton of money and drones are not that expensive. So what you're paying him for really is the licensing, the expertise and the insurance and knowing how to navigate all of the FAA stuff. You're not really paying somebody to sit there with the joystick and fly the thing. Because if they crash it, it's only a couple thousand dollars, which sounds like a lot. But in the film world, that's not, that's not much, you know. Um, they probably paid him for his time more than the drone that he was flying was worth. 
And in this class that you mentioned that mm -hmm. you would love to teach, would you be teaching us how to do flips at all with the drones? <laughs> you can't flip a drone. <laughs> not, not even like a barrel roll? No, no, not even a barrel roll. If it, if it were to fly upside down, it would, it would immediately plummet to the ground. Uh, maybe if you were high enough and you could actually get it to flip over, you might be able to upright it before it crashed onto the ground. But uh, most of them have gyroscopes in, in them, and they won't let you tilt past a certain amount. Well, there's any mechanics out there who can build a drone that can go upside down. I have two grand in Monopoly money waiting for you. <laughs> I'm sure some of the racing drones can probably do it. <laughs> well, we're just going to take a quick commercial break here. When we get back, we'll be hearing from Steve what his plans for a Hollywood blockbuster would be. <laughs> And welcome back to Chatting It Up on UCM Radio, The Beat. We last left off hearing from Steve about some of his previous careers that he's gone through in digital media production, including working in radio for Learfield, Inc., and also his freelance jobs and flying drones. Uh, so now, the question of the hour that everyone's waiting for, our all but three subscribers... If you're hired by Hollywood right now, like right this second, to make the next big blockbuster, what would it be? Yeah, so it's an interesting question, and I don't have an answer as far as a Hollywood blockbuster. I'm currently working on a documentary film, and that's probably how I would, how I would answer a question like that. Um, that reminds me of one of my favorite filmmakers, Ross McElwee, who uh, had a show called The, the Show. It was a film that aired on uh, uh, PBS, I think, called The Six O'Clock News, where he kind of analyzed the news. And a news crew came to interview him about his latest film. And he said, I always get asked, like, if you went off to Hollywood and made real movies, what would you do? And so when I'm asked a question like this, like my brain just goes to that film and his answer, which is why, you know, why are documentaries not considered real? They're actuality. They're real movies. But yet we watch a Hollywood blockbuster and we think, wow, you know, that's a real story. That's cool. You know, um, and I'm not trying to get onto you about the question. I just think it's a it's an interesting conversation to have. My current film that I am working on is about mental health care in America. When I lived down in Georgia before I moved back to Missouri, the largest mental health institution in the nation was in Milledgeville, where I lived. At one point, it had 15,000 patients and um, a long history in the U.S. Of, of being on the cutting edge of mental health care in America. And while I lived there, they were closing it down. And so lots of people are losing jobs and lots of people who in some ways depended on that institution to keep them, um, you know, uh, current with their medication and current with their uh, job prospects and, and, and psychologists and psychiatrists and things like that. Um, and so this, this place was shutting down and it had a profound impact on the local community. 
And as um, I actually got approached by a local newspaper uh, person about doing the film. So it wasn't necessarily my idea. I can't take all the credit for it. Um, Daniel McDonald is his name. And so he was my partner on the film. And he did all the the research and the interviewing and all of that stuff. And I just directed and filmed and, and I'm working on, I started working on editing it. I now have an editor down in Georgia working on the project because um, I realized I don't like video editing. I can do it, but I don't like it. So that's the film I'm currently working on. And I think the topic is really interesting. Um, as far as narrative films go, something like that that would tackle a societal issue that I think could do it in a way that brings light to it would be the route I would go. You know, that's what attracts me to documentary films is these are issues that really do affect us, whether we know that we're being affected by them or not. Um, mental health care is something that many of us will be a part of the mental health care system at some point. Some of us won't, but we might have a loved one who is. Um, I have a cousin who is schizophrenic and has been in an institution and out of it and in group homes. And um, knowing that there's a system that will help him because he literally cannot help himself is important. And I think it's something that most Americans don't think about much. So a film like this really um, sort of highlights some of these issues and hopefully brings it to light. I think you can do that with a narrative film just as well. You know, there's uh, all the way back to One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, right? Um, there are ways to approach systemic societal issues in narrative films to make people more aware of them. Um, but my, my chosen outlet is more documentary style than, than narrative. And if you did get to make this uh, narrative film, uh, what characters would you choose to be in this nope. Which actors would you choose to be in this movie? I was on a call with a filmmaker this morning named Gina Goff, who uh, worked on a film called Senior Moment. And she was talking about the actor in the film, William Shatner. And he's always been one of my favorites. And all the way back to Star Trek, but really the role that I have loved him the most in is, is Denny Crane in Boston Legal. And I wrote my dissertation on Boston Legal and his character in Boston Legal has, uh, he jokes about having mad cow disease. Everybody, it's kind of an inside joke that it's probably actually more like Alzheimer's or dementia, um, but he's not getting treated for it and he just passes it off as mad cow disease. But he forgets things sometimes. Um, and it's not a big part of the, the plot lines. Uh, there's lots of other issues that they tackle with the show and lots of other things they go into. But his portrayal of somebody who's kind of struggling with early signs of mental illness, I think, make him an actor that, that not only is he one of my favorites, but I would look at him to play a role like that as well, because I think he tackles those issues really well. Well, that's actually really cool. And speaking of a proud achievement that was possibly mentioned, it wasn't, so this is a terrible segue. <laughs> what would you consider to be your proudest achievement in the world of digital media production? Oh, gosh. Hmm. You know, I don't, I don't really have anything yet that I look at and I go, oh, that's the thing that I want to be famous for. Um, so it's, it's, it's weird to say, you know, I've, I've had limited success. I've had a commercial that I produced that aired in the state of California. I had a music video that I made as a promotional piece for the Missouri Department of Corrections. 
Um, and I'm proud of those things. Um, but I think, and it's going to sound a little bit cheesy, but the thing that I'm most proud of, honestly, at this point in my life is the students that I've taught that have gone on to do amazing things, like vicariously sort of looking at them and going, wow, look how, look how amazing these, these students are. And I just had a tiny little part in that, but I hopefully helped them get to that point in their lives. Um, that's really what I'm, what I'm proud of at this point. Now, once this mental health care film is out, if it, if it does anything at all, I'll be super proud of it, you know. Um, I, I like the fact that I went out with House Hunters and, and some of the, I wasn't the cinematographer on the project, but they knew that I teach cinematography. And so they let me kind of play around with a camera and shoot some stuff while we were there. So some of the shots that I shot with House Hunters actually made it in the episode. You know, I'm proud of things like that. But I think looking at my students and, and seeing the heights that they rise to is probably what I'm most proud of. That's really cool, actually. Yeah, really great answer to that question. Uh, let's see if you can't get a really great answer to this question as well. So sadly, as we know, a lot of movies aren't airing in theaters anymore because people are watching them from the comforts of their own home. What What do you think, or how do you think that is affecting the film industry? Yeah, that's a really good question, and it's a it's a double edged sword. It's allowing. The, the lower price of production even, you know, I can go buy a DSLR camera and a halfway decent microphone and make a film these days. 20 years ago, it cost $10,000 to buy my freelance gear. And if you look at the image that that camera, you know, produced, my phone is a better camera these days. So the quality's just increased tremendously and the price has decreased tremendously on consumer grade stuff. Um, so anybody can make a film these days. You know, I can do it with my phone and uh, free video editing software that I download on my computer. And heck, I can even edit the video on my phone if I wanted to, you know. So that's a great thing, I think. Uh, YouTube has been amazing. Netflix uh, has been amazing for independent documentary filmmakers to get their stuff out there to a wide public audience. The downside of that is movie theaters and the Hollywood blockbusters might be a thing of the past. You know, they're still making films that cost hundreds of millions of dollars, but they're, the studios are much less willing to invest that kind of money in something unless they're pretty darn sure it's going to return on, you know, their money to them. So we're getting a lot of, in the Hollywood world these days, sequels, repeats, redos of, you know, movies that did well the first time around. You know, look at Disney and the live action Lion King and Aladdin and, you know, they're not dumb. They're doing that because they think it'll make money, you know, and, and it probably does. They're good films. I'm not trying to knock the film industry for going that route. But I think that the, the experimental type of things and the pushing of the boundaries and all that is going to be happening at the lower end of the the um, investment spectrum, if you will. You know, the lower budget movies are going to be the ones like Slumdog Millionaire that people really flock to and go, "Wow, that was a really good film." You know, but those films aren't hitting the theater anymore because they don't have enough money to put behind distribution and marketing and things like that. And so the next frontier is going to be, you know, films like that are going to pop up on Netflix. 
and you're already seeing it. You, you know, you've probably seen films on Netflix that you didn't hear anything about. And you watched it and you're like, wow, that was a really good movie, you know. Um, and it's because it was a low-budget film and they didn't have the money to market it or, 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 you know, promote it like Mission Impossible 9 or whatever, you know, whatever's coming out now. Those films will still make money and that's good for them because we need them to for Hollywood to continue to thrive and make new films. But um, I think Netflix has a profound impact already on the, the landscape of films and will continue to do so. Yeah, and the first movie that I thought of when you said that was The Brothers Grimm, which, like, I didn't hear anything about until me and my family were just scrolling through on demand, and there it was, and we're like, this looks interesting. And it was honestly, like, a really good movie. Yeah, we've stumbled across a lot of things for my son. He's eight years old, and um, we'll, we'll watch it, and we'll be like, wow, that was amazing. Like, how did I not hear anything about that film? And, you know... It's uh, there's lots of good stuff out there these days, so much so that, you know, you could watch for the rest of your life and not get through all of it, uh, which is just amazing to me. Blows my mind. You know, on YouTube, there's all kinds of people just shooting random stuff that's really interesting, um, but no money to promote it or produce it or, you know, kind of get it in front of eyes to view it. So it happens just more organically these days. And I don't know what will happen with movie theaters if they'll recover after COVID or not, but that'll be another trend to watch because if, if movie theaters go away and all we have is streaming and home distribution, it's a different level of investment ballgame. <laughs> what was that? I think your, the bulbs are coming in and out. I just saw the room got lighter and yeah, I was like, what? I think the, I think one of those bulbs was dim like this one and then it came on. That's weird. Yeah. I also think there's two moths in that one. Yeah. Or something. There's no moths in the other ones, though. <laughs> Attention, audience, we are now looking through the room for moths. <laughs> and so, as we know, YouTube has definitely made a big impact on not only uh, my generation, but a lot of younger generations as well. Uh, what do you think of the impact of YouTube on our generations, and will it still last with streaming? Yeah, YouTube was really the first, um, you know, we talked about putting low-cost cameras in people's hands. YouTube was the, was the first way to to distribute videos for free. And so you didn't have to burn a DVD. You didn't have to have expensive software to edit the video. And so it's truly sort of a democratic forum where uh, people post random stuff. The thing I loved about YouTube at first was it was just crazy cat videos and uh, Charlie bit my finger and David goes to dentist and then then you started getting some videos like um, Rebecca Black's Friday, which was a music video. Um, and it got a lot of hits, but mostly because people like to watch it and kind of make fun of it. And then What Does the Fox Say was one of the most played ones, right? And um, people, I, I think legitimately it was a catchy tune, but it sounded like he says the F word, right? And that's what, you know, people were, were watching it on YouTube. And a lot of the hits they got were just because, like, what the heck is this thing? Wait, did he just cuss? You know, now YouTube has turned into a major marketing and distribution platform for music videos. And YouTube's capitalized on this by offering YouTube Music um, and, and their, their music streaming service. 
um, they're capitalizing on this by, by creating YouTube television. And so instead of subscribing to cable, you can now subscribe to YouTube. So they're, you know, they're trying to make money off of it. One nice thing about YouTube is it's owned by Google. And Google often doesn't invest in new technologies just to make money off of them. And so, you know, the Pixel phone, for example, was created not because Google wanted to corner the market in the phone industry. They just wanted to push other manufacturers to compete with them and try to make better phones. Um, Google got into the fiber industry, right? The uh, ISP, Internet Service Provider Industry, not because they wanted to push others out of that industry, but they wanted to raise the bar. They wanted uh, cable companies and phone companies who were laying down fiber optics to do so and to make fast connections to houses to speed up the internet. And, and part of that, you know, came back on Google because people were like, well, I can't get fiber in my area, and, you know, because um, Google never intended for Google Fiber to be everywhere. Um, YouTube's kind of the same way. Google started YouTube, or well, YouTube was started and then Google bought it out. But when Google bought it out, they didn't do so to make a whole lot of money off of YouTube. They have to make something, right? It has to be, it has to kind of uh, make some money for them. Um, so they're doing advertising and things like that. But when you see other platforms, uh, Disney Plus, Netflix, Hulu, all of these other people have to figure out a, a business model so that they can make money for their investors. Um, YouTube isn't doing that. And so they're not charging people to upload content and they're not charging people to watch content. And so I think it's really still kind of an interesting platform to look at as long as it's not sort of taken over by corporate interests it will remain sort of a democratic thing that you or I can upload some random video from our cell phone and get 5 million hits on it if it's funny and somebody bites somebody else's finger and they're, you know. But I think, I think that aspect of YouTube has been pushed to the background to a certain extent with the slick sort of corporate produced videos because YouTube rose up and uh, professionals saw it as a legitimate outlet to distribute stuff on. That's really cool. And lastly, if one of our listeners dreams of being a director or photographer, uh, what advice would you give them in this field? <laughs> Just go out and do it as much as you can. When I teach students and they struggle with technology or they're scared to do something wrong and push the wrong button on something or anything like that, my advice to them is never, oh, well, don't do that then. It's, well, do it more, you know? Take that audio recorder out, take that microphone out, take that camera out, uh, play around with it as much as you possibly can. When I, the first film I ever made was in high school and it was with a VHS little camcorder. And looking back on it now, I wasn't even interested in film at the time. It was a way to get out of doing an English paper. Uh, I got to make a film instead of write a paper. And it was like, oh, that's cool, you know? Um, but I just played around with the shots. I played around with the tripod and getting the camera on it. And I wasn't scared that I was going to fail. I was not scared that I was going to mess up the camera. I was not scared that I was going to do something quote unquote wrong. You know, I just did it. And then I figured it out as I went and I played around with it until I thought, yeah, well, that's cool. You know? I don't even know what happened to that video. I don't have it anymore. It was probably terrible. The only shot that I remember was in the backyard and it was dusk and you can't hardly see anything because it was so dark, you know. And it was a really, probably a really terrible movie. Um, but I think I learned something from it, you know. And that's the point. Go out and do it and just keep doing it and keep trying until you, 
until you get better at it. Yeah, at the end of the day, as long as you've learned from any mistakes or heck, if you even had fun, yeah. that's really all that matters. Yeah, I mean, There's absolutely. plenty of hobbies that I'm sure plenty of people are like, man, I'm really bad at that. But like, hey, I enjoyed it while I was doing it. Yep, exactly. But yeah, and sadly, that's all the time we're going to have for today. I'd just like to take a moment real quick and thank my guests here, Dr. Stephen Price, for joining us today. Listen to our next episode to hear from Dr. Aquilius Gordon, an associate professor of psychological sciences. I'm Greg Burns, and you've been listening to Chatting It Up on UCM Radio, The Beat. Why did I snap at the end? The Beat. <laughs> Yeah, cool. Uh, I should probably go put my pants back on. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>